Chapter One of Historical Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Historical Mysteries by Andrew Lang. The Case of Elizabeth Canning. Don't let your poor little Lizzie be blamed. Thackeray. Everyone has heard of the case of Elizabeth Canning writes Mr. John Paget, until recently I agreed with him. But five or six years ago, the case of Elizabeth Canning repeated itself in a marvelous way, and then but few persons of my acquaintance had ever heard of that mysterious girl. The recent case, so strange a parallel to that of 1753, was this. In Cheshire lived a young woman whose business in life was that of a daily governess, one Sunday her family went to church in the morning, but she set off to skate by herself on a lonely pond. She was never seen of or heard of again, till, in the dusk of the following Thursday, her hat was found outside of the door of her father's farmyard. Her friend discovered her further off in a most miserable condition, weak, emaciated, and with her skull fractured. Her explanation was that a man had seized her on the ice, or, as she had left it, had dragged her across the fields and had shut her up in a house, from which she escaped, crawled to her father's home, and when she found herself unable to go further, tossed her hat towards the farm door. Neither such a man as she described, nor the house in which she had been imprisoned, were ever found. The girl's character was excellent. Nothing pointed to her condition being the result d'une orgie échevelée. But the neighbors, of course, made insinuations, and a lady of my acquaintance, who visited the girl's mother, found herself almost alone in placing a charitable construction on the adventure. My theory was that the girl had fractured her skull by a fall on the ice, had crawled to and lain in an unvisited outhouse of the farm, and on that Thursday night was wandering out in a distraught state, not wandering in. Her story would be the result of her cerebral condition, concussion of the brain. It was while people were discussing this affair, a second edition of Elizabeth Canning's, that one found out how forgotten was Elizabeth. On January 1st, 1753, Elizabeth was in her 18th year. She was the daughter of a carpenter in Aldermanbury. Her mother, who had four younger children, was a widow, very poor and of the best character. Elizabeth was short of stature, ruddy of complexion, and owing to an accident in childhood, the falling of a garret ceiling on her head, was subject to fits of unconsciousness on any alarm. On learning this, the mind flies to hysteria, with its accompaniment of diabolical falseness, for an explanation of her adventure. But hysteria does not serve the turn. The girl had been four years in service with a Mr. Wintlebury, a publican. He gave her the highest character for honesty and reserve. She did not attend to the customers at the bar. She kept to herself. She had no young man, and she only left Wintlebury's for a better place at a Mr. Lyons, a near neighbor of her mother. Lyon, a carpenter, corroborated, as did all the neighbors, on the points of modesty and honesty. On New Year's Day, 1753, Elizabeth wore her holiday best, a purple masquerade stuff gown, a white handkerchief and apron, a black quilted petticoat, a green undercoat, black shoes, blue stockings, a white shaving hat with green ribbons, and a very ruddy color. She had her wages or Christmas box in her pocket, a golden half-guinea in a little box, with three shillings and a few coppers, including a farthing. The pence she gave to three of her little brothers and sisters. One boy, however, had huffed her, and got no penny. 
but she relented and when she went out bought for him a mince pie her visit of new year's day was to her maternal aunt mrs colley living at saltpeter bank dock street behind the london dock she meant to return in time to buy with her mother a cloak but the colleys had a cold early dinner and kept her till about nine p m for a hot supper already at nine p m mr lyon had sent to mrs cannings to make inquiries the girl was not wont to stay out so late on a holiday about nine p m in fact the two colleys were escorting elizabeth as far as houndstitch the rest is mystery on elizabeth's non-arrival mrs canning sent her lad a little after ten to the colleys who were in bed the night was passed in anxious search to no avail by six in the morning inquiries were vainly renewed weeks went by mrs canning aided by the neighbors advertised in the papers mentioning a report of shrieks heard from a coach in bishopsgate street in the small morning hours of january second the mother a churchwoman had prayers put up at several churches and at mr wesley's chapel she also consulted a cheap wise man whose aspect alarmed her but whose wisdom took the form of advising her to go on advertising it was later rumored that he said the girl was in the hands of an old black woman and would return but mrs canning admitted nothing of all this skeptics with their usual acuteness maintained that the disappearance was meant to stimulate charity and that the girl knew where the daughter was or on the other hand the daughter had fled to give birth to a child in secret or for another reason incident to the young and gay as one of the counsel employed euphemistically put the case the medical evidence did not confirm these suggestions details are needless but these theories were certainly improbable the character of la pucelle was not more stainless than elizabeth's about ten fifteen p m on january twenty ninth on the eve of the martyrdom of king charles as the poor women dated it mrs canning was on her knees praying so said her apprentice that she might behold even if it were but an apparition of her daughter such was her daily prayer it was as in wordsworth's affliction of margaret i look for ghosts but none will force their way to me tis falsely said that ever there was intercourse between the living and the dead at that moment there was a sound at the door the prentice opened it and was aghast the mother's prayer seemed to be answered for there bleeding bowed double livid ragged with a cloth about her head and clad in a dirty dressing jacket and a filthy draggled petticoat was elizabeth canning she had neglected her little brother that huffed her on new year's day but she had been thinking of him and now she gave her mother for him all that she had the farthing you see that i am on elizabeth's side that farthing touch and another with the piety honesty loyalty and even the superstition of her people have made me her partisan as was mr henry fielding the well-known magistrate some friends were sent for mrs myers miss polly lyon daughter of her master and others while busybodies flocked in among them one robert scarrett a toiler who had no personal knowledge of elizabeth a little wine was mulled the girl could not swallow it emaciated as she was her condition need not be described in detail but she was very near her death as the medical evidence and that of a midwife who consoled mrs canning on one point proves beyond possibility of cavil the girl told her story but what did she tell mr austin dobson in the dictionary of national biography says that her tale gradually took shape under the questions of sympathizing neighbors and certainly on some points she gave affirmative answers to leading questions asked by robert scarrett the difficulty is that the neighbors accounts of what elizabeth said in her woeful condition 
were given when the girl was tried for perjury in April, May, 1754. We must therefore make allowance for friendly bias and mythopoic memory. On January 31, 1753, Elizabeth made her statement before Alderman Chitty, and the chief count against her is that what she told Chitty did not tally with what the neighbors, in May 1754, swore that she told them when she came home on January 29, 1753. This point is overlooked by Mr. Paget in his essay on the subject. On the other hand, by 1754, the town was divided into two factions, believers and disbelievers in Elizabeth, and Chitty was then a disbeliever. Chitty took but a few notes on January 31, 1753. I did not make it so distinct as I could wish, not thinking it could be the subject of so much inquiry, he admitted in 1754. Moreover, the notes which he then produced were not the notes which he made at the time, but what I took since from that paper I took then, January 31, 1753, of hers and other persons that were brought before me. This is not intelligible, and it is not satisfactory. If Elizabeth handed in a paper, Chitty should have produced it in 1754. If he took notes of the evidence, why did he not produce the original notes? These notes, made when and from what source, is vague, bear that Elizabeth's tale was this. At a dead wall by Bedlam in Moorfields, about 10 p.m. on January 1st, 1753, two men stripped her of gown, apron, and hat, robbed her of 13 shillings and sixpence, struck her, stunned her, and pushed her along Bishopsgate Street. She lost consciousness, one of her fits, and recovered herself near Enfield Wash. Here she was taken to a house, later said to be Mother Wells's, where several persons were. Chitty, unluckily, does not say what sort of persons, and on that point all turns. She was asked to do as they did. A woman forced her upstairs into a room and cut the lace of her stays, told her there were bread and water in the room, and that her throat would be cut if she came out. The door was locked on her. There was no lock. The door was merely bolted. She lived on fragments of a quartern loaf and water in a pitcher with the mince pie bought for her naughty little brother. She escaped about four in the afternoon of January 29th. In the room were an old stool or two, an old picture over the chimney, two windows, an old table, and so on. She forced a pane in a window and got out on a small shed of boards or penthouse, and so slid to the ground. She did not say, the alderman added, that there was any hay in the room. Of bread there were four or five or five or six pieces. She never mentioned the name of Wells. Someone else did that at a venture. She said she could tell nothing of the woman's name. The alderman issued a warrant against this Mrs. Wells, apparently on newspaper suggestion. The chief points against Elizabeth were that when Wells's place was examined, there was no penthouse to aid an escape and no old picture. But under a wretched kind of bed, supporting the thing, was a picture on wood of a crown. Madame Wells had at one time used this loyal emblem as a sign, she keeping a very ill-famed house of call. But in December 1745, when certain highland and lowland gentlemen were accompanying Bonnie Prince Charlie towards the metropolis, Mrs. Wells removed into a room the picture of the crown, as being apt to cause political emotions. This sign may have been the old picture. As to hay, there was hay in the room later searched, but penthouse there was none. That is the worst point in the alderman's notes, of whatever value these enigmatic documents may be held. One Nash, butler to the goldsmith's company, was present at the examination before Chitty on January 31, 1753. 
he averred in May 1754, what Chitty did not, that Elizabeth spoke of the place of her imprisonment as a little square darkish room with a few old pictures. Here the one old picture of the notes is better evidence, if the notes are evidence, than Nash's memory. But I find that he was harping on a few old pictures as early as March 1753. Elizabeth said she hurt her ear in getting out of the window, and in fact it was freshly cut and bleeding when she arrived at home. All of this Nash is so far the better evidence, as the next day, February 1st, 1753, when a most tumultuous popular investigation of the supposed House of Captivity was made, he says that he and others, finding the dungeon not to be square, small, and darkish, but a long, narrow slit of a loft, half full of hay, expressed disbelief. Yet it was proved that he went on suggesting to Lyon, Elizabeth's master, that people should give money to Elizabeth, and wished him success. The proof was a letter of his dated February 10, 1753. Also, Nash and two like-minded friends, hearing Elizabeth perjure herself, as they thought, at the trial of Mrs. Wells, whom Elizabeth never mentioned to Chitty, did not give evidence against her, on the most absurdly flimsy excuses. One man was so horrified that, in place of denouncing the perjury, he fled incontinent, Another went to a dinner, and gnashed to Goldsmith's Hall, to his duties as butler. Such was then the vigor of their skepticism. On the other hand, at the trial in 1754, the neighbors reported Elizabeth's tale as told on the night when she came home more dead than alive. Mrs. Myers had known Elizabeth for eleven years, a very sober, honest girl as any in England. Mrs. Myers found her livid, her fingers stood crooked. Mrs. Canning, Mrs. Woodward, and Polly Lyon were then present, and Mrs. Myers knelt beside Elizabeth to hear her story. It was, as Chitty gave it, till the point where she was carried into a house. The several persons there, she said, were an elderly woman and two young ones. Her stays were cut by the old woman. She was then thrust upstairs into a room, wherein was hay, a pitcher of water, and bread in pieces. Bread may have been brought in, water too, while she slept a point never mentioned in the trials. She heard the name of Mother Wills, or Wells, mentioned. Now, Scarrett, in 1754, said that he, being present on January 29, 1753, and hearing of the house, offered to bet a guinea to a farthing that it was Mother Wells's. But Mrs. Myers believed that Elizabeth had mentioned hearing that name earlier, and Mrs. Myers must have heard Scarrett if he suggested it before Elizabeth named it. The point is uncertain. Mrs. Woodward was in Mrs. Canning's room a quarter of an hour after Elizabeth's arrival. The girl said she was almost starved to death in a house on the Hertfordshire Road, which she knew by seeing the Hertford coach, with which she was familiar, go by. The woman who cut her stays was a tall, black, swarthy woman. Scarrett said that was not Mrs. Wells, which was fair on Scarrett's part. Elizabeth described the two young women as being one fair, the other dark, so Scarrett swore. Wintlebury, her old master, and several others corroborated. If these accounts by Mrs. Myers, Mrs. Woodward, Scarrett, Wintlebury, and others are trustworthy, then Elizabeth Canning's narrative is true, for she found the two girls, the tall, swarthy woman, the hay, and the broken water pitcher, and almost everything else that she had mentioned on January 29th at Mother Wells's house, when it was visited on February 1st. But we must remember that most accounts of what Elizabeth said on January 29th and on January 31st are 15 months after date and are biased on both sides. 
To Mother Wells's the girl was taken on February 1st. In what a company! The coach or cab was crammed full. Some friends walked, several curious citizens rode, and when Elizabeth arrived at the house, Nash, the butler, and other busybodies had made a descent on it. The officer with the warrant was already there. Lyon, Aldridge, and Haig were with Nash in a cab, and were met by others riding hard, who had seized the people found at Mrs. Wells's. There was a rabble of persons on foot, and on horse about the door. On entering the doorway, the parlor was to your left, the house staircase in front of you. On your right, the kitchen. At the further end thereof was a door, and when that was opened, a flight of stairs led to a long slit of a loft, which Nash later declared did not answer to Elizabeth's description, especially as there was hay, and, before Chitty, Elizabeth had mentioned none. There was a filthy kind of bed, on which now slept a laborer and his wife, Fortune and Judith Natus. Nash kept talking about the hay, and one Adamson rode to meet Elizabeth, and came back saying that she said there was hay. By Adamson's account, he only asked her, what kind of place was it? And she said a wild kind of place with hay in it, as in the neighbor's version of her first narrative. Mrs. Myers, who was in the coach, corroborated Adamson. The point of the skeptics was that till Adamson rode back to her on her way to Wells's house, she had never mentioned hay. They argued that Adamson had asked her, was there hay in the room, and that she, taking the hint, had said yes. By May 1754, Adamson and Mrs. Myers, who was in the cab with Elizabeth, would believe that Adamson had asked, what kind of place is it, and that Elizabeth then spoke, without suggestion, of the hay. The point would be crucial but nobody in 1754 appears to have remembered that on February 21st, three weeks after the event at the trial of Mother Wells, Adamson had given exactly the same evidence as in May 1754. I returned to meet her and asked her about the room. She described the room with some hay in it, an odd sort of an empty room. Arriving at Mother Wells's, Elizabeth, very faint, was borne in and set on a dresser in the kitchen. Why did she not at once say, my room was up the stairs, beyond the door at the further end of the room? I know not, unless she was dazed, as well she might be. Next, she, with a mob of the curious, was carried into the parlor, where were all the inmates of the house. She paid no attention to Mrs. Wells, but at once picked out a tall old woman huddled over the fire, smoking a pipe. She did this, by the skeptical Nash's evidence, instantly and without hesitation. The old woman rose. She was tall and swarthy, a gypsy, and according to all witnesses, inconceivably hideous. Her underlip was the size of a small child's arm, and she was marked with some disease. Pray look at this face, she said. I think God never made such another. She was named Mary Squires. She added that on January 1st she was in Dorset. At Abbotsbury, said her son George, who was present. In 1754, 36 people testified to Mary Squires's presence in Dorset or to meeting her on her way to London, while 27, at Enfield alone, swore as positively that they had seen her and her daughter at or near Mrs. Wells's, and had conversed with her between December 18, 1752, and the middle of January. Some of the Enfield witnesses were of a more prosperous and educated class than the witnesses for the gypsy. Many on both sides had been eager to swear. Indeed, many had made affidavits as early as March 1753. This business of the cross-swearing is absolutely inexplicable. On both sides, the same entire certainty was exhibited as a rule, yet the woman was unmistakable, as she justly remarked. The gypsy, at all events, had her alibi ready at once, 
Her denial was as prompt and unhesitating as Elizabeth's accusation. But if guilty, she had enjoyed plenty of time since the girl's escape to think out her line of defense. If guilty, it was wiser to allege an alibi than to decamp when Elizabeth made off, for she could not hope to escape pursuit. George Squires, her son, was so prompt with his at Abbotsbury on January 1st, could not tell in May 1754 where he had passed the Christmas day before that New Year's Day, and Christmas is a notable day. Elizabeth also recognized in Lucy Squires, the gypsy's daughter, and in Virtue Hall, the two girls, dark and fair, who were present when her stays were cut. After the recognition, Elizabeth was carried through the house, and according to Nash, in the loft up the stairs from the kitchen, she said, in answer to his question, This is the room, for here is the hay I lay upon, but I think there is more of it. She also identified the pitcher with the broken mouth, which she certainly mentioned to Chitty, as that which held her allowance of water. A chest or nest of drawers she declared that she did not remember. An attempt was made to suggest that one of her party brought the pitcher in with him to confirm her account. This attempt failed, but that she had mentioned the pitcher was admitted. Mrs. Myers, in May 1754, quoted Elizabeth's words as to there being more hay exactly in the terms of Nash. Mrs. Myers was present in the loft, and added that Elizabeth took her foot and put the hay away, and showed the gentleman two holes, and said they were in the room when she was in it before. On February 7th, Elizabeth swore to her narrative, formally made out by her solicitor, before the author of Tom Jones and Mr. Fielding, by threats of prosecution if she kept on shuffling, induced Virtue Hall to corroborate after she had vexed his kind heart by endless prevarications. But as Virtue Hall was later got at by the other side and recanted, we leave her evidence on one side. On February 21st through 26th, Mary Squires was tried at the Old Bailey and condemned to death, Virtue Hall corroborating Elizabeth. Mrs. Wells was branded on the hand. Three Dorset witnesses to the gypsy's alibi were not credited, and Fortune and Judith Natus did not appear in court, though subpoenaed. In 1754, they accounted for this by their fear of the mob. The three skeptics, Nash, Haig, and Aldridge, held their peace. The Lord Mayor, Sir Crispin Gascoigne, who was on the bench at the trial of Squires and Wells, was dissatisfied. He secured many affidavits which seemed unimpeachable for the gypsy's alibi, and so did the other side for her presence at Enfield. He also got at Virtue Hall, or rather a skeptical Dr. Hill got at her and handed her over to Gascoigne. She, as we saw, recanted. George Squires, the gypsy's son, with an attorney, worked up the evidence for the gypsy's alibi. She received a free pardon, and on April 29, 1754, there began the trial of Elizabeth Canning for willful and corrupt perjury. Mr. Davy, opening for the Crown, charitably suggested that Elizabeth had absconded to preserve her character and had told a romantic story to raise money, and having by this time subdued all remains of virtue, she preferred the offer of money, though she must wade through innocent blood, that of the gypsy, to attain it. These hypotheses are absurd. Her character certainly needed no saving. Mr. Davy then remarked on the gross improbabilities of the story of Elizabeth. They are glaring, but as Fielding said, so are the improbabilities of the facts. Somebody had stripped and starved and imprisoned the girl. That is absolutely certain. She was brought within an inch of her life. She did not suffer all these things to excite compassion. That is out of the question. Had she plunged into gaiety on New Year's night, the consequences would be other than instant starvation. They might have been guilty splendor. 
she had been most abominably misused and it was to the last degree improbable that any mortal should so misuse an honest quiet lass but the grossly improbable had certainly occurred it was next to impossible that in eighteen fifty six a respectable-looking man should offer to take a little boy for a drive and that six weeks later the naked body of the boy who had been starved to death should be found in a ditch near acton but the facts occurred to squires and wells a rosy girl might prove more valuable than a little boy to anybody that elizabeth could live for a month on a loaf did not surprise mrs canning when things were very hard with her said mrs canning the child had lived on half a roll a day this is the other touch which with the story of the farthing helps to make me a partisan of elizabeth mr davy said that on january thirty first before chitty elizabeth did not pretend to certainty about mrs wells she never did at any time she neither knew nor affected to know anything about mrs wells she had only seen a tall swarthy woman a dark girl and a fair girl whom she recognized in the gypsy her daughter and virtue hall mr davy preferred nash's evidence to that of all the neighbors and even to chitty's notes when nash and chitty varied mr davy said that nash withdrew his assistance after the visit to the house it was proved we saw by his letter of february tenth that he did not withdraw his assistance which like that of mr tracy tupman took the form of hoping that other people would subscribe money certain varieties of statement as to the time when elizabeth finished the water proved fatal and the penthouse of chitty's notes was played for all that it was worth it was alleged as matter of fact that adamson brought the broken pitcher into the house this by mr wills later solicitor general now for three months before february first adamson had not seen elizabeth canning nor had he heard her description of the room he was riding and could not carry a gallon pitcher in his coat pocket he could not carry it in john gilpin's fashion and whatever else was denied it was admitted that from the first elizabeth mentioned the pitcher the statement of mr wills that adamson brought in the pitcher was one that no barrister should have made the natus pair were now brought in to say that they slept in the loft during the time that elizabeth said that she was there as a reason for not giving evidence at the gypsies trial they alleged fear of the mob as we saw the witnesses for the gypsies alibi were called mrs hopkins of south parrot dorset was not very confident that she had seen the gypsy at her inn on december twenty ninth seventeen fifty two she if mary squires she was told mrs hopkins that they sold hardware in fact they sold software smuggled nankeen and other stuffs alice farnham recognized the gypsies whom she had seen after new christmas new style they said that they would come see me after the old christmas holidays which is unlikely lucy squires the daughter was clean well dressed and testa mr davy she was pretty she was not called george squires was next examined he had been well tutored as to what he did after december twenty ninth but could not tell where he was on christmas day four days earlier his memory only existed from the hour when he arrived at mrs hopkins inn at south parrot december twenty ninth seventeen fifty two his own counsel must have been amazed but in cross-examination mr morton showed that for all time up to december twenty ninth seventeen fifty two george's memory was an utter blank on january first george dined he said at abbotsbury with one clark a sweetheart of his sister they had two boiled fowls but clark said they had only a part of a fowl between them there was such a discrepancy of evidence here as to time on the part of one of the gypsies witnesses that mr davy told him he was drunk 
Yet he persisted that he kissed Lucy Squires at an hour when Lucy, to suit the case, could not have been present. There was documentary evidence, a letter of Lucy to Clark from Basingstoke. It was dated January 18, 1753, but the figure after 175 was torn off the postmark. That was the only injury to the letter. Had there not been a battalion of as hard swearers to the presence of the gypsies at Enfield in December, January 1752-1753, as there was to their absence from Enfield and to their presence in Dorset, the gypsy party would have proved their case. As matters stand, we must remember that the Dorset evidence had been organized by a solicitor, that the route was one which the squire's party habitually used, that by the confession of Mr. Davy, the prosecuting counsel, the squire's family stood in with the smuggling interest, compact and unscrupulous. They were gypsies dealing in smuggled goods, said Mr. Davy. Again, while George Squires had been taught his lesson like a parrot, the prosecution dared not call his sister, Pretty Lucy, as a witness. They said that George was stupid, but that Lucy was much more dull. The more stupid was George, the less unlikely was he to kidnap Elizabeth Canning as a prize of war after robbing her. But she did not swear to him. As to the presence of the gypsies at Mrs. Wells's at Enfield, as early as January 19th, Mrs. Howard swore. Her husband lived on his own property, and her house, with a well, which she allowed the villagers to use, was opposite Mrs. Wells's. Mrs. Howard had seen the gypsy girl at the well, and had been curtsied to by her, at a distance of three or four yards. She had heard earlier from her servants of the arrival of the gypsies, and had looked wishfully or earnestly at them. She was not so positive as to Mary Squires, whom she had seen at a greater distance. William Headland swore to seeing Mary Squires on January 9th. He fixed the date by a market day. Also on the 12th he saw her in Mrs. Wells's house. He picked up a blood-stained piece of thin lead under the window from which Elizabeth escaped, and took it to his mother, who corroborated. Samuel Storey, who knew Mary Squires from of old, saw her on December 22nd in White Webb's Lane, so-called from the old house noted as a meeting place of the gunpowder plot conspirators. Story was a retired clockmaker. Mr. Smith, a tenant of the Duke of Portland, saw Mary Squires in his cowhouse on December 15, 1752. She wanted leave to camp there, as she had done in other years. The gypsies then lost a pony. Several witnesses swore to this, and one swore to conversations with Mary Squires about the pony. She gave her name, and said that it was on the clog by which the beast was tethered. Loomworth Dane swore to Mary Squires, whom he had observed so closely as to note a great hole in the heel of her stocking. The date was Old Christmas Day, 1752. Dane was landlord of the Bell at Enfield, and a maker of horse collars. Sarah Starr, whose house was next to Mrs. Wells's, saw Mary Squires in her own house on January 18th or 19th. Mary wanted to buy pork, and hung about for three-quarters of an hour, offering to tell fortunes. Mrs. Starr got rid of her by a present of some pig's flesh. She fixed the date by a document which she had given to Miles, a solicitor. It was not in court. James Pratt swore to talk with Mary Squires before Christmas as to her lost pony. She had then a man with her. He was asked to look round the court to see if the man was present, whereon George Squires ducked his head, and was rebuked by the prosecuting counsel. Mr. Davy, who said, it does not look well. It was hardly the demeanor of conscious innocence. But Pratt would not swear to him. Mary Squires told Pratt that she would consult a cunning man about the lost pony, 
and Mr. Nares foolishly asked why a cunning woman should consult a cunning man. One black fellow will often tell you he can and does something magical, whilst all the time he is perfectly aware that he cannot, and yet firmly believes that some other man can really do it. So write Messrs. Spencer and Gillen in their excellent book on the native tribes of Central Australia, and so it was with the gypsy, who, though a wise woman, believed in a wise man. This witness, Pratt, said with great emphasis, Upon my oath, that is the woman. I am positive in my conscience, and I am sure that it was no other woman. This is the woman I saw at that blessed time. Moreover, she gave him her name as the name on the clog of the lost pony. The affair of the pony was just what would impress a man like Pratt, and on the gypsy's own version, they had no pony with them in their march from Dorset. All this occurred before Pratt left his house, which was on December 22nd, three days before New Christmas. He then left Enfield for chess hunt, and his evidence carries conviction. In some other cases, witnesses were very stupid. One could not tell in what month Christmas fell. One witness, an old woman, made an error, confusing January 16th with January 23rd. A document on which she relied gave the later date. If witnesses on either side were a year out in their reckoning, the discrepancies would be accountable. But Pratt, for example, could not forget when he left Enfield for chess hunt, and Farmer Smith and Mrs. Howard could be under no such confusion of memory. It may be prejudice, but I rather prefer the Enfield evidence in some ways, as did Mr. Paget. In others, the Dorset evidence seems better. Elizabeth had sworn to having asked a man to point out the way to London after she escaped into the lane beside Mrs. Wells's house. A man, Thomas Bennett, swore that on January 29, 1753, a miserable poor wretch about half-past four near the ten-mile stone in a lane. She asked her way to London. She said she was affrighted by the tanner's dog. The tanner's house was about two hundred yards nearer London, and the prosecution made much of this, as if a dog, with plenty of leisure and a feud against tramps, could not move two hundred yards or much more if he were taking a walk abroad to combat the object of his dislike. Bennett knew that the dog was the tanner's. Probably he saw the dog when he met the wayfarer, and it does not follow that the wayfarer herself called it the tanner's dog. Bennett fixed the date with precision. Four days later, hearing of the trouble at Mrs. Wells's, Bennett said, I will be hanged if I did not meet the young woman near this place and told her the way to London. Mr. Davy could only combat Bennett by laying stress on the wayfarer's talking of the tanner's dog. But the dog, at the moment of the meeting, was probably well in view. Bennett knew him, and Bennett was not asked, Did the woman call the dog the tanner's dog, or do you say this of your own knowledge? Moreover, the tannery was well in view, and the hound may have conspicuously started from that base of operations. Mr. Davies' reply was a quibble. His closing speech merely took up the old line. Elizabeth was absent to conceal a misfortune. Her cunning mother was her accomplice. There was no proof of Elizabeth's unchastity. Nay, she had an excellent character, but there is a time, gentlemen, when people begin to be wicked. If engaged for the other side, Mr. Davy would have placed his Nemo repente fuit terpissimus, no person of unblemished character wades straight into innocent blood, to use his own phrase. The recorder summed up against Elizabeth. He steadily assumed that Nash was always right, and the neighbors always wrong, as to the girl's original story. He said nothing of Bennett the tanner's dog had done for Bennett. He said that if the Enfield witnesses were right, the Dorset witnesses were willfully perjured. He did not add that if the Dorset witnesses were right, the Enfield testifiers were perjured. 
The jury brought in a verdict of guilty of perjury, but not willful and corrupt. This was an acquittal, but the recorder refusing the verdict, they did what they were desired to do, and sentence was passed. Two jurors made affidavit that they never intended a conviction. The whole point had turned, in the minds of the jury, on a discrepancy as to when Elizabeth finished the water in the broken pitcher, on Wednesday, January 27th, or on Friday, January 29th. Both accounts could not be true. Here, then, was perjury, thought the jury, but not willful and corrupt, not purposeful. But the jury had learned that the court was impatient. They had already brought Elizabeth in guilty of perjury, by which they meant guilty of a casual discrepancy not unnatural in a person hovering between life and death. They thought that they could not go back on their guilty, and so they went all the way to corrupt and willful perjury, murder by false oath, and consistently added an earnest recommendation to mercy. By a majority of one out of seventeen judges, Elizabeth was banished for seven years to New England. She was accused in the press of being an enthusiast, but the Reverend William Rayner, who attended her in prison, publicly proclaimed her a good churchwoman and a good girl, June 7, 1754. Elizabeth, June 24, stuck to her guns in a manifesto. She had not once knowingly deviated from the truth. Mr. Davy had promised the jury that when Elizabeth was once condemned, all would come out, the whole secret. But though the most careful attempts were made to discover her whereabouts from January 1st to January 29th, 1753, nothing was ever found out, a fact most easily explained by the hypothesis that she was where she said she was, at Mother Wells's. As to Elizabeth's later fortunes, accounts differ, but she certainly married, in Connecticut, a Mr. Treat, a respectable yeoman, said to have been opulent. She died in Connecticut in June 1773, leaving a family. In my opinion, Elizabeth Canning was a victim of the common sense of the 18th century. She told a very strange tale, and common sense holds that what is strange cannot be true. Yet something strange had undeniably occurred. It was very strange if Elizabeth, on the night of January 1st, retired to become a mother, of which there was no appearance, while of an amour even gossip could not furnish a hint. It was very strange if, having thus retired, she was robbed, starved, stripped, and brought to death's door, bleeding and broken down. It was very strange that no vestige of evidence as to her real place of concealment could ever be discovered. It was amazingly strange that a girl, previously and afterwards of golden character, should in a moment aim by perjury at innocent blood. But the 18th century, as represented by Mr. Davy, Mr. Wills, the barrister who fabled in court, and the recorder, found none of these things one half so strange as Elizabeth Canning's story. Mr. Henry Fielding, who had some knowledge of human nature, was of the same opinion as the present candid inquirer. In this case, writes the author of Tom Jones, one of the most simple girls I ever saw, if she be a wicked one, hath been too hard for me. I am firmly persuaded that Elizabeth Canning is a poor, honest, simple, innocent girl. Moi aussi, but I would not have condemned the gypsy. In this case, the most perplexing thing of all is to be found in the conflicting unpublished affidavits sworn in March 1753, when memories as to the whereabouts of the gypsies were fresh. They form a great mass of papers in the state papers domestic at the record office. I owe to Mr. Courtney Kenny my knowledge of the two unpublished letters of fielding to the Duke of Newcastle, which follow. My Lord Duke, I received an order from my Lord Chancellor immediately after the breaking up of the council 
to lay before your grace all the affidavits i had taken since the gypsy trial which related to that affair i then told the messenger that i had taken none as indeed the fact is the affidavits of which i gave my lord chancellor an abstract having been all sworn before justices of the peace in the neighbourhood of enfield and remain i believe in the possession of an attorney in the city however in consequence of the commands with which your grace was pleased to honour me yesterday i sent my clerk immediately to the attorney to acquaint him with the commands which i doubt not he will instantly obey this i did from my great duty to your grace for i have long had no concern in this affair nor have i seen any of the parties lately unless once when i was desired to send for the girl canning to my house that a great number of noblemen and gentlemen might see her and ask her what questions they pleased i am with the highest duty my lord your grace's most obedient and most humble servant henry fielding ealing april fourteenth seventeen fifty three his grace the duke of newcastle endorsed ealing april fourteenth seventeen fifty three mr fielding r sixteenth my lord duke i am extremely concerned to see by a letter which i have just received from mr jones by command of your grace that the persons concerned for the prosecution have not yet attended your grace with the affidavits in canning's affair i do assure you upon my honour that i sent to them the moment i first received your grace's commands and having after three messages prevailed with them to come to me i desired them to fetch the affidavits that i might send them to your grace being not able to wait on you in person this they said they could not do but would go to mr hume campbell their counsel and prevail with him to attend your grace with all their affidavits many of which i found were sworn after the day mentioned in the order of counsel i told them i apprehended the latter could not be admitted but insisted in the strongest terms on their laying the others immediately before your grace and they at last promised me they would nor have i ever seen them since i have now again ordered my clerk to go to them to inform them of the last commands i have received but as i have no compulsory power over them i cannot answer for their behaviour which indeed i have long disliked and have therefore long ago declined giving them any advice nor would i unless in obedience to your grace have anything to say to a set of the most obstinate fools i ever saw and who seem to me rather to act from a spleen against my lord mayor than from any motive of protecting innocence though that was certainly their motive at first in truth if i am not deceived i suspect that they desire that the gypsy should be pardoned and then to convince the world that she was guilty in order to cast the greater reflection on him who was principally instrumental in obtaining such pardon i conclude with assuring your grace that i have acted in this affair as i shall on all occasions with the most dutiful regard to your commands and that if my life had been at stake as many know i could have done no more i am with the highest respect my lord duke your grace's most obedient and most humble servant henry fielding ealing april twenty seventh seventeen fifty three his grace the duke of newcastle endorsed ealing april twenty seventh seventeen fifty three mr fielding end of chapter one recording by colleen mcmahon